Good morning, church family. I really hope you like that song, because we're going to be singing songs very similar to that for all of eternity. I love that song. Give me any song that says, Worthy is the Lamb, or There is no one like him, and those are the best songs. Well, happy Veterans Day weekend uh, to all of you. Especially want to give a thanks to those that have served uh, over the years in our military. And in many ways, it's like there's no more Christ-like profession uh, than to give up your rights and your privileges for the sake of somebody else to enjoy their rights and their privileges. Um, we're actually going to talk about rights this morning, so I think it's a great uh, segue into that uh, discussion here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But Paul's going to do the very same thing. He's going to lay aside his rights. They're not even bad things. He could claim them. It wouldn't be sin. But just like a soldier in the military, he's willing to set his rights aside, set his freedoms aside for the sake of life and liberty and the rights of others. And so what a great... Uh, weekend to be able to celebrate that not only in our country but also as we look to that is the very shape of the gospel laying aside our rights for the sake of others look at first corinthians nine nineteen, and then we'll pray the title of this message is become a slave to save first corinthians nine nineteen. this is paul's motto i think this is christ's motto so it should be our motto as well for though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all. Why would I do that? Why would I lay aside my freedom? Why would I become a slave when I don't have to? That I might win more of them. Become a slave to save. Paul saw that the salvation of souls was his great priority. And I think that's the encouragement that we have too. And he didn't just say that, I don't think, because he's an apostle. I don't think he said that because he's just a missionary. I don't think he said it because he's a preacher. I think he said it because he's a Christian. That his top priority as a Christian was the salvation of souls. And so let's pray and see what God has to say for us to this, this morning. Father, it's so easy to get distracted in this life. Lord, we confess that when we come into this building, the first thing on our mind should be giving you praise, but sometimes in reality, that's the furthest thing from our minds. If we've got problems, we have troubles, we have trials. We live in a country, we wonder where it's going. We wonder what's happening. We think of wars around the world. And it just seems like so many things are out of your control. And so you being Lord over all might be the last thing on our minds as we come here. But it's true. You are Lord over all. And you are glorifying yourself in every way. Everything's happening according to your plan, even our lives, even down to the day, even down to the minute. You've carefully arranged every aspect of our lives for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd focus our attention on you, that we would once again just marvel at the fact that you saved us, that you chose us before the foundation of the world, 
and that in our sin, we had no way of getting to you. So you sent your son to come for us. Lord, may we rejoice in that truth. Who are we that God would become a man and die on a cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to you? Lord, may we see that clearly today. Remember it clearly today because that'll spur us on to want to live for others. That'll spur us on to make statements like Paul, though I'm free from all. I look forward to eternity with you. I'm a child of God. And I have all the rights and privileges that come along with that. But I make myself a slave to all. I don't revel and enjoy my freedoms in this life. I'm actually willing to lay those down if it means the salvation of somebody else. If it means somebody else seeing you for who you truly are. If you could do the same work in someone else's life that you did in my life, may that be our ambition. So Lord, help us today. We want to hear your voice. These are challenging words. It reminds us of really what are we here to do? And we're here to make much of you and your son so that the world might be saved. Help us to live for that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, we saw in chapter 8, just that last chapter, that Paul talked about liberties that we enjoy as Christians. And his encouragement was to us is, you should be willing to lay those liberties aside for the sake of loving your brother. And now he sort of turns the corner and he thinks about not our brothers in Christ, but he thinks about the world. He thinks about sinners. And he says, we have a lot of rights. Paul has many rights, even rights that we don't have because he's an apostle. But he says, how should you view your rights when it comes to sinners? You should be willing to lay down your rights if it means the salvation of a sinner. And so that's his encouragement to us, that we would lay down our rights. But if we're going to do that, number one, we have to make the salvation of souls our top priority. Make the salvation of souls your top priority. For the first 14 verses here, Paul's just going to like, just list out all the rights that he has. And it's a little bit like, Paul, why are, you, why are you talking about this so long? Why are you belaboring this point? And I think he wants us to see that all the rights that I have, I'm willing to lay them all aside for the sake of someone else's salvation. So let's look at this. Paul's just going to lay out his rights for these first several verses. First, he has a right as an apostle. Look at the first six verses here. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So Paul's just establishing his right. I'm an apostle. I've seen the Lord. And people might be like, oh, you saw Jesus before he was crucified? Oh, no, uh, I saw him after that. Oh, you saw him when he was raised, and you saw him before he ascended? Oh, no, 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 I saw him after that. He was he died, was buried, was raised, ascended to the Father, and later on appeared to Paul specially to say, you are going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. 
The people, you were on your way to kill Christians, but I'm not going to have you do that anymore. I've got new plans for you. I'm going to have you actually seek to save the Gentiles. And Paul has all the rights then that go along with that. He has a right to food and drink. He has a right to bring along a believing wife if he wanted to, and that the church should support that, them as well. He has the right to refrain from work. He doesn't have to be a, work with his hands. He doesn't have to be a tent maker. The people that he's preaching to should support him. That's what he's saying. I'm an apostle. I have this right. So he's got an apostolic right. He also has a natural right. Look at verse 7. Just examples from the natural world. Who serves as a soldier as at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Like, so I don't have just an apostolic right. I just have like a natural right, right? Like soldiers don't have to pay to be a soldier, right? Their needs are taken care of. Farmers gonna, are going to enjoy the crop that they plant. Shepherds are going to enjoy the milk that they get from shepherding the animals. Like, it's just a natural right. I should be supported through, by my work, by the things that I'm doing for you. He goes on. He says, not only do I have a right as an apostle, not only do I have a natural right, I actually have a God-given right in Scripture. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy 25. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Did God write that just so that you'd feed your ox when it treads out the grain? No. Verse 10. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? No, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? I have a God-given scriptural right that you're supposed to support me in my ministry. Right? That's what he's saying. Not only that, jump down to verse 13. I have an Old Testament precedent that this is what should happen. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Right? This is the way that God's always done it. People that serve in the temple, they get their living from the temple. People that offer sacrifices, they get to enjoy part of the sacrifice. God provides for those that are working through people. But then he drops the ultimate bomb in verse 14. Not only this, Jesus himself says, I have this right. Verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded. It's like, look, I got red letters, bro. Jesus said this. Jesus said in Luke 10, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So I have a right as an apostle. I have a God-given scriptural right. I have a natural right. I have an Old Testament right. And Jesus himself says, I have the right for you to give me support when I'm ministering to you. Now, you might be thinking, why is Paul talking about this? The natural response is probably, oh, he wants money. Like, well, geez, Paul, if you wanted money, just say so. You don't have to, like, lay it on so thick. Oh, I've got all these rights. But he just, that's not the reason he's saying it. 
Why is he saying it? Why is he going out of his way to show you all the rights that he has? Because he wants you to know that he lays them aside for the sake of the gospel. Go back to verse 12. If others share this right claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I'm not telling you this because I want your money. I'm telling you this so that you see the way that I live. I have every right, and it wouldn't be sinful for me to claim that right, but it might be an obstacle to someone hearing the gospel. So what do I do? I lay them aside. I lay aside my rights. In fact, he says in verse 12, I will endure anything if it means that someone's going to hear the gospel. So not only do I lay aside these good things, I'm willing to suffer hard things if it means that someone might hear the gospel. If there's even the slightest chance that our rights might hinder someone's reception of the gospel, I'll lay them down. Because in the context, he's talking to this group of people. Some of them are poor. So if he came in and he said, like, okay, I'm going to preach to you the gospel, but, you know, God says, Jesus says, natural law says, all these things say, you need to support me while I preach the gospel to you. They might not have opportunity to hear the gospel because I'm not sure they could afford to support Paul. So what does he do? He says, I'll do it for free. I'll work with my hands. I'll build tents. I, whatever I need to do, I'll do it because I care about the salvation of your soul. And then with suffering, he says, if there's even the slightest chance that our suffering might facilitate someone's reception of the gospel, we'll endure it. Why? Because the salvation of souls is his top priority. Even above good things, I care more about salvation of souls. That's the best thing. So Paul lays down his rights for the salvation of others. It's interesting, Paul goes on to say, like, he has to preach the gospel. Like, it's not an option for him. Christ told him to do it. Like, he has to do it. So he doesn't get really any benefit or reward for doing it because he's just doing what God told him to do. But he thinks, so what can I give? I want this to cost something to me. I want to be able to offer it freely. So what can I lay down? That's what he says. Look at verse 15. He says, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, right? I'm not, I don't want your money. That's not why I'm telling you this. Then he says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I'd rather die than have you support me. I don't want your money. I want to be able to offer something to the Lord and to you from myself. He goes on. Verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What's Paul saying? I don't get a reward for preaching the gospel. Why? Because Jesus told me to. So it's not like I'm doing some great thing I'm just doing what Jesus asked me to do. So I don't have a boast in my preaching of the gospel. Verse 17, 
For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But Paul's saying, in some ways, I'm not doing this just out of the goodness of my own heart, though he does love them. I'm doing this because Christ told me to. He says, if I do not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? Right? How can I offer the gospel in such a way that I do get a reward? And this is his answer, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. I don't have to present the gospel free of charge. But I want to do something. I want it to cost me something. I want to give a benefit to you. I want to remove any obstacle to the gospel. So I'm willing to do it for free. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So it makes us ask the question, so Paul, he wants to, he wants them without a shadow of doubt to, to know that he has rights, but he wants them to know it so that they can see that he lays them all aside for their sake and for the sake of the gospel. So the question is, how do we view our rights? I mean, we're Americans, right? We love us some rights. Our country was founded on certain unalienable rights. Don't tread on me. Right? And we're Californians. Like, we invent new rights all the time. We're on the cutting edge of rights. But like I said at the beginning, there's nothing wrong with fighting for other people's rights. We should. But are we willing to give up our rights if it means that someone might hear the gospel? I mean, think of all that Paul voluntarily gave up. Respect. They should respect him as an apostle. Did they? Nope. Did he demand it? No. Love. He's their spiritual father. They should love him like a father. Did they? No. Did he demand it? No. They should support him as a missionary. Do they support him? No. Does he demand it? No. They owe him gratitude, encouragement, are they thankful? No. Paul gave up a home. He gave up opportunity to be married, to have a family. I mean, he gave all these things up. Why? For the sake of the gospel. I want as many people saved as, I, as possible. So I'll lay aside everything if it means the opportunity for other, someone else to hear the gospel. I mean, we have to lay down our rights. We have to be willing to lay those down. And this is hard because it's very countercultural, right? We are told by the Beastie Boys and others we need to fight for our rights. We should demand our rights. We shouldn't let anybody step on our rights. And Paul says, lay them all down if it means someone's going to have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And if we zoom out a little bit, our rights are just one example of laying something down for the sake of the gospel. I mean, making the gospel is a top priority because it involves not just putting away bad things. Many times it involves putting aside good things. Again, Paul said, like, I could be married, but I chose not to be. And marriage is a good thing. Rights are good things. He's like, I'm willing to set aside good things for the sake of the gospel. Silly illustration, 
Uh, I used to love sports. I still like sports, but I used to love sports. Like baseball, basketball, football, you name it. Football was my favorite. My ideal weekend, Saturday morning until Sunday night, just completely jam-packed with sports, right? The worst time of day, I lived on the East Coast, so football on Sunday didn't start till 1 o'clock. So it's like, what am I supposed to do between when I wake up and 1 o'clock? There's no football on. Thankfully, they've solved that problem. Now they play games in Europe. So if you live on the West Coast, you can watch football from 6.30 a.m. until 9 o'clock p.m. That is the good life. But that was my idea of, like, that's a great life. I just get to watch sports all the time. But then things happen, right? God saves you. That changes some things. Then you get married. Then you have kids. And you start to think, if I really want to make the gospel a top priority in my life, I can't watch sports from 6 a.m. Saturday morning till 9 p.m. Sunday night. Like, things have to change. There's nothing wrong with sports. Enjoy sports. Enjoy a game. But you have to be willing to, what can I lay aside for the sake of the gospel? The gospel in my family, the gospel at my workplace, the gospel to my neighbor. I got to lay aside a lot of great things if I'm going to make the salvation of souls my top priority. So the question to us, is the gospel your top priority? Is the salvation of souls your top priority? Now you might have the question, well, how do I know? Well, it's like, oh, well, I got the gospel memorized, right? I, got, I know all the points. I can recite it. Um, you know, I can defend it. Is that how you know that the gospel is a top priority in your life? Nope. How does Paul say you know the gospel is a top priority in your life? You love sinners. That's how you know that the gospel is a top priority in your life. You love sinners. Look what Paul says in verse 19. Become all things to all people. Become a slave to save. That's what he's saying. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. Martin Luther wrote this little article called On the Freedom of the Christian. And he has these two statements back to back in his article. A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. And then his very next sentence is, A Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. All, not like the ones I want, not like my family, maybe my friends, subject to all, free from all, and yet subject to all. And that shouldn't surprise us, because that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 20. The disciples, they're arguing with each other about which one of them is the greatest. And what does he say? It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Why would I do that? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. You were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You're free. How should you use your freedom? Become a slave to everyone. That's what Christ says is the good life. Laying aside my rights, not enjoying them, laying them aside so that I can serve all people. And you think, why? Why would I do that? Why would I give up my freedom to become a slave? What does Paul say? To win more. Become a slave to save. If the salvation of souls is your top priority, then it makes sense. That's what I want. I'll lay aside anything and everything. I'll suffer anything and everything if it means somebody might be saved. So Paul then gives some examples. Verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why? In order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Why? That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why did I do it? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. Why? That I might win the weak. He says, I'll give it all up. Whatever it is, whatever right I have, whatever you know, honor I have, blessing I have, I'm willing to lay him down to win someone. He says, to the Jews I became as a Jew, which is an interesting thing for a Jewish person to say. Like, what do you mean? You are a Jew. He's like, not really, not anymore. I think of myself as a Christian. But I'm willing to become like a Jew. I'll go to the synagogue. Give me the Old Testament. Let's go through it together. I'm gonna, I'll become like a Jew if it means winning the Jews. He says, I'll become like one under the law, even though I myself am no longer under the law. But I know the law. I can follow the law. I could submit to the law. I have no problem doing that. I don't need to bring a BLT into the synagogue. I can reason with you from the scriptures. I can follow your laws, even though I don't have to. Paul says, I don't have to do that, but I'm willing to do that if it means that I might win someone. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now, he does say, I don't sin, right? I'm still under the law of God. I'm under the law of Christ. So I'm not going to sin, but I'll go to where they are. I'll go to where sinners are. They don't have to clean themselves up and come to me. I'll go to them. Why? In order to win some. To the weak, to the marginalized. They don't have to clean up their lives before they come to me. I'll go to them. And I'll find them where they are, and I'll bring the gospel to them. Why? So that I could win some. I want to see people saved. I can submit to the law. I can, you know, act like I don't have to submit to the law. I can, whatever it is, I'll do it. If it means salvation for somebody else, I will do it. Verse 22, I have become all things to all people that by all means, any means, I might save some. Why do I do that? I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I'm not going to allow there to be any obstacle to the gospel at all. 
Like, your culture, not going to be an obstacle. Politics, not going to be an obstacle. Meat, what you do eat, what you don't eat, not going to be an obstacle. Vaccine, poke, no poke, whatever, I don't care. Mask, no mask. I'm not going to let that be an obstacle to the gospel. I'm not going to get hung up on that. I'm not going to make that the main thing. I want your soul. So I'll lay it all aside. And so what are you willing to do to win a soul for Christ? But maybe starting with the what question is the wrong way to start. Let's start with the why question. Why would you be willing to do anything to win a soul for Christ? Because it's what Christ did for you. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Larry mentioned this last week. It's worth going there. Philippians 2. Why would I lay aside my rights? Why would I do that? Why would I suffer hardship? Because it's what Jesus did for me. Look at Philippians 2, verse 1. It says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Why would I do that, Paul? Where are you getting that? Is that just sort of your advice? Like, hey, this is kind of a good way to live? No. That's the way that Christ thought. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ had a mindset. He had a way of thinking. He had a way of looking at life where he said, my rights, my privileges are not the most important thing. In fact, I'm willing to lay them aside for the sake of someone else's salvation. Look at his example, verse 6 who though he was in the form of God. He's God. That's like the banner that you have to hang over everything else that it says. The banner is, before you even think about what he did, know this, he is God. What rights and privileges come along with him being God? Everything. I mean, he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our respect and our honor and our joyful submission and perfect obedience. He's worthy of it all. We shouldn't live one second apart from his will. He's worthy of everything. Those are his rights. And what does he do? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what we do with our rights, right? We grasp them. These are mine. I'm not letting them go. How dare you try to take them from me? These are my rights. And what does Paul say that Jesus did? He didn't consider them something to be grasped. He, was op- he opened his hand, and he let his rights and his privileges go. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. 
being born in the likeness of men. He's God. He doesn't have to do any of this. He becomes a man? Why, Why would he do that? He doesn't have to. He doesn't deserve that. Like, I mean, set aside just for a moment, like, all the sufferings and everything that he went through on the way to the cross, he doesn't deserve to even become a man. Like, to go from God to man. I mean, the infinite chasm that he was willing, he was willing to become a man. Then what does he do? Verse 8, being found in human form. God was found in human form. Can you fathom that statement? And what did he do? He humbled himself. He became, he became a man. He already humbled himself. He already humbled himself to an infinite degree. And then when he's in that humble state, what does he do? He humbled himself even more by becoming obedient. Like God doesn't have to be obedient. God's God. And yet he's saying, I'll become an obedient man. And obedient to what? To the point of death. Even death on a cross. And you ask, why? Why would he do that? He did it for you. He did it to save you. Because there was no way that you, in your sin, could ever get to him. So he became like you to rescue and reconcile you back to himself. It was the only way that was possible. He did it for you. He wanted to save you. He wanted to rescue you. And if it meant setting aside his rights, he was glad to do it. If it meant becoming a man, he was glad to do it. If it meant living a life on earth and suffering rejection and pain and being spit upon and mocked and nailed to a cross, it even says he was glad to do that for you. So why would you demand your rights? Why wouldn't you let them aside? Your Savior did it for you. Out of love for your Savior and love for your fellow man, why wouldn't you do it for them? That's what Paul's getting at. We can get so caught up in what we think we deserve, and maybe sometimes even what we do rightfully deserve. He says, who cares? Let it go. Don't hold on to it. Don't cling on to it. Jesus didn't. Let it go. Empty yourself. Humble yourself. And may God use you to save somebody else. That's the why question. Why would you do it? That's why you would do it, because Jesus did it for you. Before we end, I do think it's helpful to think about the what question. What does this actually look like? What does it look like to become, you know, to the Jews to become a Jew, to those under the law to become like one under the law? Turn to Acts chapter 17. I think Paul gives us a great example of what this looks like. Paul goes to Athens, and they are a pagan people. They've got all kinds of gods. They've got 
statues to all sorts of different gods. They even have a statue to an unknown god in case we miss something. We want to make sure we have all our bases covered. So there's multiple gods. We worship them all, you know, wanting to make sure, you know, we got everything covered just in case. Now, how would you go and bring the gospel to a people like that? I think our temptation is to say, you pagan people, what is the matter with you? You're worshiping other gods? There's only one God. What are you doing? What does Paul do? Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That's kind of an understatement. They've got statues to all kinds of gods. And he could just say, like, you're a bunch of pagan sinners, repent. But he doesn't do that. He says, I see you're very religious. Verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. And there it is. There's his doorway. I don't come in with a hammer. I come in, I want to understand the people that I'm talking to. What's important to them? What do they value? Here, they're very religious. They value that very much. And then he sees a statue to an unknown God, and he says, there's my door to the gospel. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then he tells them, basically he tells them the gospel. He doesn't hammer them over the head right at the beginning. He looks for a doorway, and then he's bold and faithful to walk through it. Or you think of Jesus. John chapter 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's the teacher of Israel. So how does Jesus interact with him? Oh, you think you know something about the kingdom of God? Well, let's see what you know about the kingdom of God. You're a student of the scriptures? Okay, let's go to scripture. Right? He interacts on that level. To the Jew, he's a Jew. Then the next chapter, John chapter 4, he meets a woman at the well. She's been married five times. The man that she's currently with is not her husband. How would we bring the gospel in that situation? You sinful woman. Like, look at your life. Like, you've made a, it's a, you've made a train wreck of your life, one relationship after another. What does Jesus say? I can give you water to where if you drink this, you'll never be thirsty again. He doesn't avoid the issue. He gets there. He gets to, you have five husbands, the one you're with is not your husband. He gets to sin. He gets to repentance. But he looks at her life and he says, you've been searching for satisfaction in one relationship after another, and I have something that will actually satisfy you. What's he doing? He's trying to win souls. He's trying to save So what does this look like? Well, again, silly example. Let's say you're dating someone, right? And let's say that you hate cats, right? You're allergic to cats. Cats scratch you. They don't like you. You don't like them. Your friend was, you know, killed by a lion. You know, you just do not like cats at all. Then you meet a girl, and she's amazing, and she has a cat. Then what happens? I love cats! Right? You're taking Benadryl. You're like, I don't know. Oh, no, I'm fine with cats. You get a cat sweater. You start listening to cat podcasts. You can't get enough cats. You change your screen name to something like Meow Mr. 456, something like that. You love cats. Why? Because you want to win the girl. 
In a similar way, Paul says, that's how we should view unbelievers. We shouldn't be like, what's the matter with you? Why are you focused on that? You're messed up. He says, no. Seek to win them. What are they into? Get some interest in something like that. We should seek to understand, find out where they're coming from, find out what's important to them, and look for ways that the gospel meets those needs. So example, let's say you have a friend who is in the LGBTQ plus community. How do we typically go about sharing the gospel with them? Well, the church has a very bad reputation in many cases for being like, again, you sinner, what is wrong with you? Like, you're so, you know, whatever, this, that, the other thing, because you believe this or that, or you're this and that, you're attracted to this or that, like, that's wrong. Like, it is wrong. But it's like, take a step back. What does the LGBTQ community value? They value equality. They value community, individuality, freedom of expression, respect, diversity. Are those things that the gospel actually speaks to? Absolutely they do. Like, where does true equality happen? At the cross of Christ. Where are we free to be our truly authentic selves when we're in Christ? Where do we experience true community? In Christ's church. And I'm not saying you hide from the gospel, you sp- I mean, or hide from sin. You speak to it, right? What's the essence of sin? The essence of sin in that community is that you've said that the truth lies within you when the truth actually lies from without. Like, we don't create our identity. We're meant to receive our identity from God. And our attempts to create our own identity are the age-old problem of we think we are smarter than God. But God does want us to experience our true selves, to be our true selves, but it only happens when we come to him. God wants us to experience real unity and diversity, so much so that he sent his son to die for our sins so that we could be united to him and to one another. You don't have to go with the hammer. You take what they value and you show them how the answers they want are actually in the gospel. So you become all things to all people. You're like Christ. Christ was incarnated himself as a man to save men. So we can incarnate ourselves into these different communities in order to save them. So why don't we do this? A few reasons. One of the big ones, I think, is that we just lose sight of eternity. I just have tunnel vision over this life. Or I have just tunnel vision over my life. Or I have tunnel vision over just my day. That's all I can think about. Today's going to be a hard day. How am I going to get through today? We just lose sight of eternity. We forget that hell is eternal. We look, it's like, yeah, look at this guy. He loves sports. He's watching them from Saturday morning to Sunday night. Like, he's actually having a pretty good life. And yet we forget that what awaits him is eternal destruction. We fear man more than we fear God. I don't want to share the gospel. Like, they might get mad at me. They might hurt me. And I fear man more than I fear God. Or we seek our kingdom more than we seek his kingdom. We say, God, bless my plans. 
instead of, God, help me to get on board with your plans. Another way that why we don't do this, just out of laziness. We're like the disciples. The 5,000 were there, and they think, Jesus, you better send these people away to go feed themselves, because feeding them here, that's going to be hard work. That's going to be impossible work. I don't want to do that. You send them away. Spurgeon says it's easier to forget their need than to relieve it. I think we don't do this because we just have lack of faith that God actually still saves sinners. Even though we should look at our own lives as exhibit A, he can take someone that doesn't want him, doesn't love him, doesn't think he's a sinner, and he can change them to become a lover of Christ. Another reason we don't do this, we oftentimes leave it to the professionals. The evangelists, they'll share the gospel. That's their job. Or the the pastor, that's his job. He's going to go and share the gospel. Or the missionary, that's their job. No, this is a Christian job. Every individual Christian should be concerned about the souls of men. Sometimes maybe we let go and let God. God's sovereign. God's the one who has to save. I can't save anybody. Only God can save. So I'm just going to sit on the couch. But God uses us. He uses people. Some of us might even get so overly theological that we think, well, being so focused on the salvation of man, isn't that really man-centered? And aren't we really ultimately concerned most with the glory of God, not just the salvation of man? Well, what glorifies God more than the salvation of a sinner? I mean, what could be closer to his heart than seeing souls saved? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. There's nothing more godlike than seeking the salvation of a sinner. Listen to this from Spurgeon. To long for the conversion of others makes us godlike. Do we desire man's welfare? God does. Would we gladly snatch them from the burning? God is daily performing this deed of divine grace. Can we say that we have no pleasure in the death of him that dies? Jehovah has declared the same with an oath. Do we weep over sinners? Did not Jehovah's son weep over them? Do we lay out ourselves for their conversion? Did he not die that they might live? You are made godlike when this passion glows within your spirit. This is a vent for your love to God as well as your love to men. Loving the Creator, we pity his fallen creatures, and we feel a benevolent love toward the work of his hands. If we love God, we feel as he does, that judgment is strange work, and we cannot bear that those whom he created should be cast away forever. Loving God makes us sorrow that all men do not love him too. It frets us that the world lies in the wicked one, at enmity to its own creator, at war with him who alone can bless it. Oh, beloved, you do not love the Lord at all unless you love the souls of others. So why does this love for others so often grow cold? 
probably, probably many of you, the, when you got saved, it's like one of the first things you thought of was like, I have to tell whoever. Like, I got to tell my wife. I got to tell my mom. I got to tell my dad. I got to tell my brother. I got to tell my classmate. I got to tell them. And we, it's just natural. Like, when you're saved, it's like, I've got to tell everyone this. So what happens? Well, I think it's a pattern that you see throughout the Bible. God's people are in a tight spot. God delivers them, and they rejoice. God, you're amazing. We could never have done this ourselves. You deserve all the praise. You deserve all the honor. Have you seen? Every, hey, everybody, look at this kind of God that we have, that he delivers us from things that were impossible. Then you're enjoying your freedom. You're enjoying the good life. You're in the promised land. Things are good. And you start to have the thought like, I must be pretty special for God to treat me this way. Not like these pagans I see around me. They don't deserve God's grace. They don't deserve his mercy. But me, I mean, he saved me for a reason, right? And we become like the Pharisee. Because I thank God that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. What happens? We get this Jonah syndrome where we start to feel like I deserve the things that God gives me, but evil people don't deserve these things. Turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Somewhere in those minor prophets. See if I can find it faster than I did at the first service. After Obadiah, since you all know where that probably is. So right after Obadiah there, you get Jonah. So you know the story of Jonah, right? God tells Jonah, go to Ninevites and tell them that I'm going to destroy them in a month. And Jonah's like, no. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do it. You told me to go that way. I'm going to get on a ship that's going that way. I'm going to go the other way. I don't want anything to do with them. And you ask yourself the question, why? Why doesn't he want to do that? You might think, well, maybe Jonah's scared. Maybe they're mean people. If he goes and he tells them that, like, he's going to get killed by these people. You come to find out that's actually not the reason. He's not scared of them. In fact, you know the story. He gets swallowed by a whale or a fish, and he gets spit back out, and he finally does what God told him to do. He goes to Nineveh. He tells them, in 30 days, you're all going to be destroyed. Peace out. Then what happens? The whole city repents. Like, if you read chapter 3, it's like, from the king all the way down to the animals, it's like they're repenting. Like, Lord, you're right. We are evil. We don't deserve it. Would you be merciful to us, please? And God is merciful. And what's Jonah's response in chapter 4? The whole city repented. Chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Like, in the Hebrew, it actually says that Jonah considered this to be a great evil, what God did. God forgave them. People that didn't deserve it, God forgave them, and Jonah thought, that's evil. And then look what he says. You can call this a prayer in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. He said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why? For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Like, isn't that supposed to be a good thing? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is why he didn't want to go. I knew this would happen. I knew I would go, and I would tell them that you're going to destroy them, and that they'd repent, and that you'd be merciful. That's why I didn't want to go. Because they don't deserve it. I do. Not them. And that's our heart as Christians sometimes. We look out on this world and we think, these evil people, they don't deserve his grace. Neither did you. And what did God do? He sent his son to become a man and to be humble and obedient to the point of death on a cross so that you would be saved. So why can't you, do, why can't you lay aside a right so that you might be the avenue through which God would save somebody else? That's why we do it. Because he did it for us. We were never deserving. We're not now deserving. We're sinners just like the rest of the world, and he was gracious to us. And may we become a slave to save other people as well. And I want to encourage you that God can use you in this. Notice what Paul says back in chapter 9. He says, I made myself a servant of all that who might win more? God? What does he say? Verse 19, that I might win more. Or look down at verse 22. I become all things to all people that by all means God might save some? No, he says that I might save some. Now, of course, Paul knows salvation belongs to the Lord. God has to save but he sees it as God could use me. That, I, that you could share the gospel with someone and you can say that I saved that person by the things that I said, by the love that I showed them. Of course, God did the work. God's the only one who does it. But Paul has no problem saying that I might save, that I might win. God uses people. This week, I had the opportunity to go to John Sweat High School. And there were 250 to 300 kids at the school that were in, like the whole school was invited by the Christian club to have lunch in the gym and to hear the gospel. Now, of course, most of them probably came for the pizza, but that's fine. So I had the opportunity to share the gospel with 250 to 300 high schoolers. Now, listen to this. I shared for just a few minutes, and I was just kicking myself afterwards. I feel like I just didn't do a very good job. I felt rushed. I felt like I wasn't as clear as I could be. I felt like I left some stuff out. Like, I wish I could go back and do it again. I'd sort of frame it up a little bit differently. There's things I wanted to say that I didn't say, and there was times where it's like, I don't even know what I was saying. But then I get this text, you know, a couple hours later saying that on the comment cards that 10 students said that they wanted to receive Christ. So all that to say, it's like, you don't have to be polished. You don't have to be, a, you know, this wonderful preacher or anything like that. It's like when you see those sculptures that are, like, made out of garbage, right? 
You know, it's like you look at it you're like, wow, that's amazing. And then you get up close and it's like, this is like bottle caps and plastic and just a bunch of trash that they got from the sea. It's like, that was me sharing the gospel at John Sweat. Like, I'm just some like nothing, some nobody, some nothing, some little piece of trash in the grand scheme of things, but God can take that and he can make it into something beautiful. You are that same thing. You can be used by God to save sinners. He can use you. And that should be our greatest desire, that the salvation of souls remains our top priority. I'll close with this. There was a man named Horatio Bonar. He wrote a little book called Words to Winners of Souls. And he says this, The question, therefore, which each of us has to answer to his own conscience is, has it been the end of my ministry or my life? Has it been the desire of my heart to save the lost and guide the saved? He's a pastor, so he applies it to himself. Is this my aim in every sermon that I preach, in every visit that I pay? Is it under the influence of this feeling that I continually live and walk and speak? Is it for this I pray and toil and fast and weep? Is it for this that I spend and am spent, counting it, next to the salvation of my own soul, my chiefest joy to be the instrument of saving others? Is it for this that I exist? To accomplish this would I gladly die. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Become a slave to save people. Make the salvation of souls your top priority. Even this week, think about how can I share the gospel with someone this week and every week, maybe even every day, because God's still saving, and he could even use you. Let's pray. Father, we want to be used by you. That's our prayer. Father, forgive us. We are so distracted in this life. We become so focused on our life, our family, our day, even our church, our job. We just forget about eternity. We forget about just the blessings that we enjoy as being your children. And we forget that those blessings are available to anyone who would put their faith in Christ. Father, make the salvation of souls our top priority. May we say with Paul that I've become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. That's why we're here. May we see fruit. Lord, we rejoice at the work you've done this year. We think of 30 people that got baptized this year at this church. Lord, we want to see more. We want to see you continue to save, and we want to be part of that. We want you to use even us to share the gospel that you might save more and more souls. Not for our good, not for the good of this church, but for your own glory so that more people would see you for who you truly are. Do your work, even through us. In Christ's name, amen.